Welcome to Money Self Made, a show where I interview remarkable people about how to master your money and create a meaningful life. I am host and co-creator Elise Walsh, and today's guest is viral author Paulette Perhatch, who is famous for her essay, Story of a Fuck Off Fund. But Paulette also has a ton of incredible credentials under her belt. She has written for publications including the New York Times, Slate, Vice, Elle, Cosmopolitan, the list goes on. She is an entrepreneur and founder of writing coaching business, Welcome to a Writer's Life. And she recently released her course, Going Pro. And it seems like she's doing something new and incredible every single week. So I was really excited to catch up with her. We talk about all kinds of interesting things, including how to start your own writing business, how she went viral, what she would do if she had to start over from scratch today when it comes to building her business or her writing career. We talk about why self-love is so key to success and why self-hatred is keeping you from the life you want. We explore really great tidbits that are applicable to everybody including how to be a power networker. She's a traveler. She's been in the Peace Corps. She's had an extremely exciting life that I think anyone could learn a thing or two from. Uh, We also talk about everything from her corporate career, making over six figures, to how she ventured out on her own. So no matter what you're into, you're going to get something great out of this episode. Before we get started, please remember to smash that thumbs up button if you're watching on YouTube. And if you aren't watching on YouTube, be sure to check us out. All you have to do is search Money Self Made on youtube.com. Remember to click the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you never miss another episode. And I would love for you to ask our next guest questions. I crowdsource the questions to guests. So if you want to join our community and find out who the next guest is going to be and ask them a question yourself, just join the group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash money self-made. Thank you so much for joining our community. I'm really excited to have you there. Without further ado, please help me welcome Paulette Perhatch. But first, we're going to dive into a really fun conversation about uh, a viral article that she wrote a few years ago and the seven steps to financial independence series, it's really critical. We talk about the FU money, or as she calls it, the F off fund. So I'm just going to take it over to you. What inspired this incredible article that you wrote about the importance of an FU fund or F off money? Hi, thanks so much for having me. So definitely it was getting myself in bad situations when I didn't plan for the people I might have to tell to F off in my life. And so just kind of always living paycheck to paycheck on that edge and also considering myself a very strong and independent woman. But then when it came time to exercise that independence, I didn't, you know? And so I said, Oh, this is really not a thing that I had ever thought about being young. You know, we have a bias in our brains that makes us think everything's going to go peachy keen for us. It just is kind of a fictionalized history of things that have happened to me as a young woman and thinking about how things might've gone differently if I'd had a few thousand dollars in the bank or enough money to quit my job or get another apartment. So just about kind of always having that cushion so that you maintain control over your life and no one else 
has control over you. That's such a powerful topic. And for those who haven't read the article, I will link to it in the show notes. But it's sort of a sliding doors scenario about a young woman who has this cushion and who doesn't have this cushion. Women sort of forging their own financial independence in this current decade. Tell me about your relationship uh, with money from an early age. You've got a really interesting backstory. And I love that you are brave and real about it. It's a very tumultuous and funny and sad story about a family that could have been fine, but we were the fun family. And so we just went all out. And then my dad lost his job and it tipped us over into bankruptcy when I was eight years old. Really a lot of traumatic memories about feeling like my entire family was in trouble just all the time. We were living in a nice house on the water with a pool. You know, it wasn't a big house, but it was on the water. It had a pool. I've gone back to it as an adult. And I was like, oh, well, the house is like a lot smaller than I thought. (laughs) So then I remembered things like the Cadillac getting repossessed, that kind of scenario. So that really gave me a tumultuous relationship with money. And it's been a lot of rebuilding around the mindset of money and realizing the kind of trauma that I have and this idea of if I don't have it, I can't lose it. I'm in a place where I realize that that is the, I don't want to use the term PTSD lately, but it's it's the pattern that has been formed within me, probably not full on actual PTSD, but those are the habits that I have where I have a hard time hanging on to large sums of money. I've been so up. I worked at a corporate job. I broke six figures by $600. (laughs) I made $100,000 and $600. I've worked as a small town reporter making $26,000. I've been a Peace Corps volunteer making $2,000 a year. It's been such an interesting aspect of my life. And now that the story went viral, it's really become a lot of what I talk about with writers and about being financially healthy. And I'm so interested in the spiritual aspects of money and is money bad? Is money good? How much money should a person have? I mean, it's just the kind of thing that I could talk about for the rest of my life. So I find it super fascinating because money is just one form of power and kind of energy, if you will. And there's so many other different kinds of forms and it's just, it's just wild. It's just interesting. And once you start talking about it kind of as part of your profession, you realize how it's just everywhere and it's inescapable, even if you want to be a writer and an artiste. Absolutely. In that way, sometimes it's even more difficult to escape if you want to be a writer and artiste. So I love that. And I, I think PTSD is a absolutely fine term to use. You know, tra- trauma is trauma to our minds and bodies and souls, whether it is something that we quote unquote define as a traumatic experience, or, you know, even if you're a, a kid and you're not quite understanding what's going on, I, I think we mm-hmm. all have that that we carry from childhood. And um, I, I feel like you're so brave because you talk about it, you recognize it. And that is what's most important is to have those conversations and bubble it to the surface so we can all learn um, and heal. So tell me a little bit more about some of those early experiences that sort of defined how you relate to money. Really feeling powerless. And also I think I developed a big, this has been a really big shift for me from a victim mentality where other people around me have control over what I have. So I would be the, the kid is like, Hey, can I borrow your shirt? Can I borrow, do you have 50 cents? Blah, blah, blah. So it was like leveraging, of course, that was the word I used in elementary school, leveraging relationships for things, right? And 
feeling like every people around me have the power to take or to give to me instead of learning to kind of create value. And that if you just learn to become a person who knows how to create value for other people, that that will all come to you, that you don't have to beg for things or ask for things. You can go about it in a way that feels like it's a win-win for people. And that's a completely different set of skills. And that's a set of skills that I don't think broke kids learn very well. And so I had to learn that. And also the shame around having trouble with money. There was a survey. It said that half the households in the United States couldn't afford a $4 emergency. So it's this thing we're all pretending not to struggle with. And that's why I love this era where people are just letting it out and talking about money. And it was so interesting to go live in South America during Peace Corps and in in Paraguay where I lived, like money is very openly talked about in a way that feels shocking to an American. We're like, oh my God, you know, is this okay? This is so weird. So I think we're in a phase with, you know, kind of pulling back with like the invention of the internet. You know, my mom says like, we didn't have blogs about personal finance. You know, we had credit card ads. And so that's what was informing us. And now we can all kind of band together and be like, Hey, what's working for you? What's working for you? And I believe it was Amanda Clayman who said, people are talking about money. Rich people just talk about it with the people they've hired to help them with it. So I think that middle-class and broke people can't afford to not talk about money. You know, we can't afford to keep walking around pretending like we all have it figured out and just leave it up to credit card companies to guide us not working. That again is why I wanted to start this movement and continue the conversation so that we can kind of surface these stories. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a cool time. You know, it's a cool time where we're we're redesigning. I love all the different aspects of it from the fire movement and how you can really choose your own path is very interesting to me. Yeah, that's why I wanted to have these conversations around sort of the seven phases is because I think that we, first of all, put rich people and wealthy people on this pedestal and they get interviewed a lot. Um, But I've learned that often, sometimes the most successful and wealthiest person in the room is often the quietest uh, or somebody who maybe has had a different path has actually learned something. So I'm kind of tired of that, like get rich quick scheme on the internet. Um, It's like the new credit card ad to me uh, for our generation. (laughs) And that's kind of what I want to cut through the noise and just expose real stories of real people and not all, like you said, pretend like we have it figured out. So I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love talking about things that like I struggle with too. And I think my blog, you know, on welcome to the writer's life.com. It's very much like, Oh man, I'm, this is really hard. Wow. This happened, this funny thing. And then, okay. I think I heard from this person. This is something that's working for me. Like what's working for you, you know? And it's just, so I'm 38 now. And I really feel like finally my business is kind of starting to take off and, and I feel confident that I can get enough clients and I feel comfortable as a freelance writer. And it just is like, okay, no, like this is working. It's finally starting to work. But you know, 2008, when I was writing my book, I was living in a 150 square foot apartment. I, I got the second half of my book advance and I literally like bought more Tupperware. And I have never, I worked so many hours. I was like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And I remember I went on a date with someone and we had a second date and he's like, Hey, you want to go out again? I was like, well, Hey, I have to, um, I got to go check out the venue for my book launch. So like you can come, there's a bar. Like that's how busy I was. I was like, if you want to see me, I'm doing stuff right now. And so, you know, you have to, you have to put so much into it to get 
hopefully something out of it at the end. And I do have hope that I will. And I think I'm on the right path, but I think we all have to acknowledge how hard that is. And I read um, the 48 laws of power, which was like kind of for an assignment, but I really was like curious too. And, you know, one of the things they say is make it look easy. And so when people are out there making it look easy, that's a way for them to gain power. That's not empowering the people who follow them. So I hope I'm making it look hard as hell because it is. (laughs) I love that. Yes. I read the 48 laws of power last summer and I wish that there was a 50th law of power. Brevity is also a law of power. It's such a long book to get through. But uh, I used to love Robert Greene at the end of I felt like kind of slimy. I was like, I don't, I'd rather be authentic. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My, I wrote a story about it. My sister had gotten the book and she was like, what is this? Oh my gosh. She was kind of traumatized. She, she felt slimy for even buying it, but it is, it's good to know how it works, right? This is how power works. And there, it's just like making money. There are good solid ways to make money and there are slimy ways to make money. And it would have been interesting if you were like, I'm going to organize these laws from least slimy to most slimy, right? They're all just kind of mixed in where some it's, you know, one was essentially think win-win. And so it's like, okay, that's like seven habits stuff. Like that's great. Right. And the other one's like smash your enemy completely. And you're like, oh my God, like calm down. Right. But I I think it is, it's good to know, especially what I liked was how to defend yourself when someone else is using this kind of power. And also to recognize, like, now that I know that making it look easy is a way to gain power, I can recognize when someone is making it look easy. And I know it's not as easy as they're, as they're making it seem. That's why I studied marketing and mind control mm-hmm. and psychology so that I could <laughs> spot those. The only problem is, is now I think almost everything is a scam. Uh, my fiance is trying to get me to mellow out a little bit. And I like groceries aren't a scam. It's okay if they give you something <laughs> in exchange for Have your you money. Have you read Brandwashed? No. I bet oh I would my love gosh, it, about neuromarketing. Oh my <sighs> God, you have to read Brandwashed. Oh my okay. God. To me, the key to everything in business is half for me, half for you. I love when I feel like I'm bringing value to people. And then, yeah, I get to take care of myself from the money that comes from that. I started a meditation and free writing studio online called A Very Important Meeting with April Davila. We just love it. I love the people who come, the people who come love it. It's just warm fuzzies all around, right? It doesn't have to be this terrible thing. There doesn't have to be a win or lose. It doesn't have to be the version of the world that Donald Trump seems to believe in. It can be win-win. And that's a beautiful thing. I really like that. I like that as well. Yeah, I really believe a rising boat lifts all tides. And from what I've discovered in my many years of business, even if you are doing something kind of slimy, it'll come back to bite you. It might not be today or tomorrow, but it will inevitably happen if you deliver value first. That's really key. So that's what I always try to do. Even now talking to you, writing as a business, for some reason, it does not compute, but I know it's possible. (laughs) Tell me how this is a thing. Story is power especially in the attention economy. And what writers know how to do is get people's attention. And what writers know how to do is to form emotion and emotion drives business. And so words are worth money. You can drive sales with words. So the closer you are to the actual end sale, I think the easier it is to get someone who wants that sale to pay you to help make it happen. Or 
any way that they need someone's attention, whether it is an article they want clicks on. And sometimes it's not about that whatsoever. To me, it's about paying attention to that when it comes to making the money so that I don't have to think about that at all. When I write my artwork, you know, when I write my novel, I am not thinking about, will this sell? Will this sell a bunch of copies? Yes, I want it to. That'd be great but I don't need it to. I don't need to get paid back for all this time that I'm putting into it because I, I've, I have that handled, right? Like I don't have to put that kind of pressure on my creative work. And that was really by design because I knew I just didn't want to do that. But I did know also that writing is a very valuable skill. So anyone who's like, imagine, you know, a CEO has to give a speech. Hey, let's just outsource it, have someone else write it. There are as many people who hate writing as there are people who love writing. So think about working as an accountant. Like for me, that would be the most just stressful and terrible thing in the world. And I'm so happy to pay a bookkeeper and an accountant. When I pay someone to do my taxes, I'm like, take my money. So there are that many people out there who want you to just take their money so that they don't have to write an email, a blog post. I mean, there's so much content being created right now. There's so much demand. If you are good at your job. And if you're professional and there's so many people aren't even trying to be that professional or they don't understand everything around the writing, you are a writer and a business owner. So you have to act like a business owner, the Tetris board of what am I going to do this month? It's always changing. I think I actually wanted to do a list on my blog of every single writing job I can ever remember having like, like pretty generalized, like how I got it, how much it paid some little detail about it. Every single word you see online needs a writer. I've workshopped tweets on a team of five people for a very high up person at a huge tech company, right? We're all sitting around being like, would he use this word in a tweet? Like it was crazy, right? And in some ways, despite what happened with magazines, it's sort of a golden information and writing economy. If you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I come from the content strategy place. So I'm like all too familiar with the tweet obsession word Mm -hmm. moments. I get it, but yeah, tweets. The branding and the tweets. (laughs) I have tweet PTSD. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be a terrible thing. It can be fun. I I love all the different weird things I learned about. That is really cool. So let's say somebody is listening to this and they have dreams of getting um, an article to go viral the way many of yours have, or they want to be featured in a major, major publication. What advice would you give in terms of just sort of baby steps to start going in that direction? Virality is such a mystery. I had zero idea that that would happen with that article. No idea whatsoever. There is a book that I would recommend called Made to Stick. And it's about the, it's about why some ideas stick. And I did, I had read it six years before I wrote the story of an FL fund. And then I went back and there was like some summary and I noticed all six points it met all six criteria of something sticky. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. It's just a really good book about communicating. And then, you know, start to read where you want to be published and start to write and see what they do, like what they require for submitting. Like, just look at like, what does it take to submit here? Right. And when you want to pitch an article, you can either for essays, usually you write the actual story before you send it in because so much of an essay is about how it's written. For articles in general, you usually send a pitch and a pitch is a sales document. It's a proposal. It's saying, hey, do you want to do this project together, right? And so you have to learn about sales writing. Um, that book, Influence, I really like. I got a, I got a PhD in sales writing when I worked for three years on proposals at a tech company. And so that was like the best experience there. Even though I, I, I really hate writing pitches. 
especially when I've already written the thing, which is something I do a lot, which is a terrible way to make money and have a sustainable business. But often I just think by writing, that's just how I am. And so I'll often write it and then I'll be like, it's like explaining the movie. It's like, just watch the movie, like just read the, you know, but like, that's not how it works. So selling your writing is a skill apart from being a writer, but it is just another kind of, you know, it's another emotion. It's another way to manipulate someone's emotion. You are trying to pass on the emotion to them that they're excited about this story, right? Like we have to have this story because they get so many pitches. Start to network with people who are in the magazine, follow them, um, follow the editors. Because a lot of times, like when I was first starting out, you literally had to write a physical letter. I'm a million years old. You had to write a physical letter to the publication. You had no idea who was there receiving these letters. And now editors are online and they're doing all these calls to pitch. You know, they'll say, hey, I'm looking for like this kind of a story right now, which is just incredible. It's just, it's a win for everybody, right? So just get in the game, you know, start to pay attention and then start to read a lot of nonfiction as well around the topics that you're interested in, because you'll get this deeper knowledge and things that, you know, knowledge that like, yeah, it's in this book, but maybe you can bring it to the forefront or combine it with some something else that's timely and, and write about that. What makes a really strong pitch in your mind? So it's something that shows that it's a service to the reader. It's something that shows that you've been reading the publication and it's like timely is pretty important. I've definitely sold stories that weren't timely, but if you can have something where it's like this holiday is coming up or this anniversary or whatever, editors really like that. And the thing that I've learned, there's one really great source. His name's Tim Herrera and he works at the New York times and he started doing some webinars and stuff that have been really great. And one thing that he helped me really understand was that editors, it's like, you really are talking with them in a way where it's like, we are going to work on this together. So they don't want it to be that like cut and dried, right? They don't want you to be like, this is who I'm interviewing. This is the story. Hey, I've already written it. It's like, no, like we want to guide you on this, that you guys are going to work together to serve their readers and you're going to help them look good to their editors and to their readers. Let's talk about how you're a published author, which is so badass. I know a lot of people that want that, want to get there and uh, it's a struggle. Talk about pitches, you know, pitching your book and stuff. How did that come about for you? And, and how would you recommend someone also start on that process? I think one of the best ways to start is to start a blog. I, it, it's really interesting. So I started writing a course about being a writer uh, called um, the writer's welcome kit. And I wasn't anybody, you know, I was just someone who was kind of just doing it. And I, because I lived in Seattle and I lived in a place that had a writing center, I had met a lot of writers, seen how it worked. It was so surprising to me. It was so surprising to me how human everyone was, how much of a struggle it was, how everyone had doubts, how, you know, the big thing was like, you don't get like discovered, right? Like you just have to do it. And you have to write so much crap before you write anything good. Like this was all very surprising to me. So I kind of just wanted to have this like little tour of if you're a beginner, like here's kind of how it works. Right. And so I was writing that as just nobody. And then the F off thing happened. I got this kind of stamp of approval. We like your stuff. You can be a writer. And I was like, yay, I was hoping I could write. It's kind of permission from the world. During 2016, I wrote a book proposal and I sold a book. And they weren't the same book. 
So I wrote a, I wrote a book proposal for a financial memoir, which was called bad with money before I knew about Gabby Dunn Sasquatch books in Seattle came to me and they said like, Hey, we love this, you know, the, the F off fun stuff. Like, do you have any book ideas? They didn't really want the financial memoir, but I had told them about the writer's welcome kit. And they were like, Oh, would you want to turn that into a book with like adding a little mini memoir about how you became a writer? And so that's what we ended up doing. And, you know, I got $9,000 for the book and take away taxes, what my, um, you know, what my agent got paid. And it was a real, real rough year in 2018 of writing it, working to make money. And I was, I worked my butt off that year and I did not make a lot of money that year at all. It was, it was struggle time for sure. But that's, you know, my book is now kind of my business card. <laughs> I did get chosen as a, one of Poets and Writers Best Books for Writers that year, which just was one of those feelings like, oh, I did enough, you know, like, whew, okay, feel good about that. You know, it's been, it's been awesome. So I love, I really love helping writers build a solid foundation around their life to like, enjoy it, like enjoy the life. It's so hard and you don't know what you're going to get out of it. So like, have fun with it figure out what people do to be successful. It's always a struggle. Like I'm never, I'm never like literally maybe three days out of the year. I'm like, I did a really good job today. I feel like an artist and I made enough money and I didn't eat a box of donuts. Hmm. Job well done. I don't go to bed like that almost ever. I'm just like, where's my other sock? I forgot to write my novel this week. Oh my God. Can I go buy a box of donuts or will I have you know, will my credit card get declined? So that's the usual, but like overall, the overarching progress I see is really nice. You know, it's like, yes, no, it's starting to work, but day to day, it feels like a cluster. I totally get but it. One of the fun things about networking is that you, you see that everyone else feels that way. We don't, we can't stand back and recognize like our own, like, no, you're doing great. You know, you're doing okay. Like my friend and I have this joke, like he actually got me a towel, a tea towel that says you're doing great. Cause we have this joke about like telling each other, like you're doing great. You're doing great. Don't worry. Everything's fine. Yeah. That's so important too, in the age of social media, where it looks like everybody is doing incredible, you know, with their highlights reel on Instagram. And it's important to remember that's not necessarily what's going down. So um, that's why I put all my rejections on Instagram. I love you for that. I think that is so cool. (laughs) I want to figure out a way to just, it's beautiful. I think that's what we all need to do as humans right now, which is why I started this podcast. But yeah. Nice. How do you determine like, what is a good piece of writing? Do you have, cause like, that's the problem with the painters, right? They can't stop painting on the canvas. Uh, how do you mm-hmm. figure it out? Like when it's time to just let it go? That's really hard. Sometimes I will read it and I'll like, I'll feel it and I'll be like, okay, like I'm feeling this. And also feedback from friends. I have a workshop group that's been meeting for about three years. That is just like, I just love it. Oh my God. It's so good. Um, and they will, will tell each other, like, this is good. This is done. You're, or you're almost there or, you know, um, and then sometimes it's just the the deadline is today, (laughs) you know? So things, some things take so long. I have an essay that I think I literally started 10 years ago that I'm just finishing up and I had to, I got a writing coach, you know, because I'm, I really want to make sure that I keep track of this kind of essayist part of my life that I love. And I don't want to stop being an essayist. And some essays take, I mean, a hundred hours to write. It's only, I have this essay is only 2,300 words. It's about going to college two months after my dad died. And like that year, and it's really hard to make myself open the file and go back there. Um, and it's taken me forever to get it right. And there was also like an emotional, um, 
path that I had to take where I had to get some things out on the page and then I could delete them. But having written them out was really helpful to me. And then being able to delete them and be like, oh, that part was just for me. And now I'm ready to like make this another thing outside advice. And then also just continuing to work on it. Um, One of my favorite quotes about writing is from one of my coaching students. And she said, I can't believe how much work I put into something I already put so much work into. And I was like, girl, welcome to being a writer. (laughs) It's so ridiculous. Yeah. My novel, I joke that I'm on my third first draft because that's literally what it feels like. Like I wrote 70,000 words, scrapped those, did like a first draft that was had a lot of brackets, like something funny here. And so now I'm going back and I'm like, okay, this is like the first draft where you, it actually has to be clean copy and like your best guess of what would be funny here, you know? So, and I'm on chapter three of that. (laughs) Yeah. I hear you completely. The life of an artiste. What I love about you is how much experience you have in all of these different walks of life. I did not know you worked a corporate job. I'd love to hear more about like your experience. What was that like for you? Yeah, it was after Peace Corps. Oh my God. It was probably like one of the lowest points in my life money-wise. So bad. It was so bad. So bad. And um, so after Peace Corps, I came home. I had thought that I was going to spend a a third year there. And so I spent my like readjustment allowance to come visit my family. And then while I was home, I had like a come to Jesus situation and realized I needed to leave. So then I came back with no readjustment money. So two days after leaving Peace Corps, which is really, really emotionally tough in a lot of different ways, I was sitting in a tiny little cubicle doing data entry. And my favorite part about this story is that I learned this thing that I call like, I'm not staying here energy. And I was like, just, I would listen to sad songs. I would cry. I would try to read people's handwriting and input the data. I would not be in and like riding my horse in Paraguay and like hanging out with my friends. And like, there was nothing beautiful about it. It was terrible, but I was like, I am going to use this job to learn 10 key, like how to put input numbers on the 10 key. So I'd watch a little video and I'd play a little game and then I would do my job. And just having that energy of like, I'm not staying here. I'm using this to move on. I'm bettering myself. Like, this is not my life. This is my life right this second. And I would listen to Florence the Machine. The dog days are over on the way to work, driving my mom's car, work in this tiny little cubicle. And then I would like, you know, go home and cry a little bit more probably. And so then I moved to Seattle and I was reading all these books about getting a job. And, you know, they talked about negotiation and things like that. And I got a job offer. I contacted a a career counselor. And I said, hi, I have no money, but can you help me with like one tip or something? And she was like, I really like the book, the overnight resume. So I was like, thank you. So I did my resume with that book. I got a job interview at a tech company. So I went, I think like that day I had like accidentally forgot my wallet and it turned out my shoes didn't match. It was like seriously the most cluster time in my life, but I ended up getting a job offer and someone I knew who worked in an industry where you just don't negotiate was like, you know, you really just need this job. Just accept the job. And I was like, no, like I'm reading all these books. I'm going to negotiate. So I asked for $5,000 more and they said, well, what about commission? Cause I was writing proposals and I was like, okay, that sounds great. So I made 1% commission. That difference turned out to be a hundred thousand dollars over three years difference. 
So, but the difference between not asking for it, you know, and then asking for it was so huge. And so I said, okay, I know I want to be a writer. I'm going to do this job. I'm going to pay off my student loans. I'm going to get myself out of trouble. And so I listened to Dave Ramsey on the way to work every single day. We have mixed feelings about Dave Ramsey. I could totally write an essay called Dave Ramsey and Daddy Issues. <laughs> I'm sure if Dave Ramsey and I went out drinking, it would probably end in a like argument. It's like, I don't agree with you on everything, but like, I need you to yell at me right now. I got, I paid off $20,000 in student loan debts. I was around people who were making a ton of money. The sales guys who sold the tech were just, who has the biggest watch? Who has the nicest shoes? They were probably making, I don't even want to know how much money. And I, it made me think, what if you could make the amount of money they made per hour, but work 10 hours a week, right? It taught me, I got my first national publication because of something I learned at that job, which was in sales, keep the conversation going. Cause I would sit in on their sales seminars, right? Even though I was just writing the proposals. So a lot of it didn't matter to me or like, I didn't learn, you know, I didn't need to know what they were learning, but I, I picked up a bit. And so I wrote a proposal. I wrote a pitch and with an essay to salon. And then the editor wrote me back a really nice rejection letter. And she said, I liked how it started, but then it turned here and I kept the conversation going. So I came back to her and I said, would you consider a rewrite? And she did. And then that was my first national publication. So a lot of what I thought that job was, which was a big waste of my time because I just wanted to be an artist. It was really training me to take my art seriously and to make good money while I worked as an artist. Cause I think, especially for freelance writers, we don't treat it like we're like, I'm in my pajamas and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, like treat it like you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year be on this level of professionalism. A lot of times because your clients are, if you're working for a head of marketing, he's in an office. He, these are the kind of words he's using, right? This is the kind of punctuality he expects and the kind of follow-up. So it really taught me a good bit about corporate culture and which parts I wanted to incorporate into my life and which parts I'm like, I don't want to be in a place where people say circle back or ping or no, thank you. So it was very good lessons. And then when I got to walk out the door, that felt great too. You know, much more, I really threw a bunch of my 401k because I'm like, I know I'm not gonna be making enough money to like save for retirement. Really saved a lot of money. I took one die happy trip to Myanmar and Thailand and did the scuba diving. And I was like, okay, if I never get to go crazy on a trip again, this at least is like my one big send off, but I think I'll be okay. I think uh, I will continue to be a traveler. It was a big wild experience. And it really was the first time that I felt valuable to the team. Like I would sit in with the CEO it wasn't like a super huge tech company and I would deliver presentations to the CEO and I started a program with him and I really stepped into my power in that role, right? Because it was such a scary thing to write proposals for RFPs, especially requests for proposals. Cause if you, if you were a day late, they would throw it out. So you couldn't be a day late. So that was a great, it was great, great training. I also love what you said about ping and circle back and all of that jargon and the <gasps> acronym <The> worst. <laughs> But you're I literally, right. I hired, I just gave myself a promotion and I hired an admin person and nice. a few other people part-time. And I like in the job description, I was like, we will not circle back. You will not be pinged. Like this is a very <laughs> corporate <laughs> culture because there's a difference between professional and corporate. And so one of the things I love about being a professional writer and like carving your own culture, right. For your work and saying, this is the amount that I'm willing to there, there are so many ways that value works and pay works and loving the people you work with and being able to be yourself at work 
and not have to be this like robotic. I mean, I really think it's very, I think it's bad for people. I don't think it's a healthy environment the way that we say the same stuff every meeting. Hey, thanks for hopping on on a Friday. Just wanted to circle back. It's like makes you crazy. You know, it's like everything is this autofill. And no wonder we're like going bonkers as a people. Having done Peace Corps, there it, Peace Corps gives you a big like shut the F up that sits with you for the rest of your life. It's a hard balance between people would kill for this opportunity and I would, because I have the opportunity to go for something different and more and deeper, I'm going to do that. But with the spirit of, I acknowledge that I'm still in a very good position and I don't, I don't sit there happily all the time. I have to catch myself and give myself a big, shut the F up, write your corporate work. You know, you're not in a place that is dirty or loud. You're not being abused by your employer. You have power. You have an HR department. You have laws like shut the F up, do your work. Yes, I do want to be able to get to these other levels of, you know, it's funny because in some ways the people that I knew in Paraguay had certain things that we spiritually or socially that we don't have. You know, my, my friend from Colombia, he was like, do you know what we say about gringos? I was like, what? And he's like, we say like, no tiene sabor. Like they don't have flavor. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. We don't have flavor. You know, like we, they taught me how to live in certain ways. Like one woman I saw, they were like, oh, are you coming into work today? And she was like, no, I have too much laundry to do. And I was just like, my head exploded. I was just like, I'm sorry, what? But there wasn't this huge line, this like, you know, guillotine between who you are at work and who you are at home. And so I was just like, I want to be this like, I want this kind of embodied life where I am one person and I, you know, I can like cook my meals on an actual stove and eat actual food. And, you know, I don't have to wear a certain kind of like rope around my neck at work to say that I'm professional and I have skills and like, and the the amount of like BS in corporate environments, like someone who we all knew threw everyone under the bus and was the worst coworker was called a great leader in a meeting. And I was like, I have got to get out of here. Cause I just do not tolerate BS very well. I want to live in, it's like, it's like you're being gaslit at every turn. And it's just like, I, I, what? Like, this is madness. No, you are. Yeah. You're singing my song right now. Mm-hmm. You inspired me to write mystery thriller novel in which I'm documenting no. all of the horrible behavior I've seen in corporate America. I wrote a blog post actually on welcome to the writer's where I talked about, it's called like what happens when you stop hating yourself and just really accepting the things that you're bad at and getting the help that you need and leveraging what you are good at or leveraging money to get help. So right now I literally have three people who help me with my money stuff. I have, I do an, uh, a barter with someone who is my personal finance coach. I hired a, a bookkeeping consultant and I have someone who's like bartering for his like CFO opinion stuff. So it's, Nice to be like, I don't have to, you don't have to be good at it, right? You just have to figure out what you need to do. And I use YNAB for budgeting, which I love. What are some sort of fundamental mind shift uh, sets? I know you talked about a few in the beginning, but I really like that idea of outsourcing. Self-acceptance, I think is huge. 
because self-discipline, you can be like flogging yourself with self-hatred because you're not a certain way. That'll never work. So you have to love and accept yourself to get to that place, I think. Yeah. I tried that for a few decades. Um, I read The Willpower Instinct, which talked about the science behind why that doesn't work. And it was so freeing to be like, oh, if you just yell at yourself, you're more likely to repeat the behavior. So I was like, okay, let me off the hook. I don't have to do that. I don't know why we wait so long to like love ourselves or start to treat ourselves well, but you're allowed to love yourself. You're allowed to take good care of yourself. You're allowed to talk to yourself nicely. The best thing to do is to make promises to yourself and to keep them. And that really improves your confidence and just learning. I mean, learning, learning, learning. I'm all about that. Thinking about the ways that that value exists, right? So it's, there's money, there's time, there's skills, expertise, sex, um, you know, all these things, attention, and you can trade them all around, right? It doesn't have to be like money for this. And then for this, you can barter. Um, and so when you have nothing, the best way to break in is just to start learning online for free, right? Like if I had, if I were like, if I was stripped, knowing what I know now, but I'm stripped down to nothing, I have no byline, no credits, no education, you know, I would just not have a TV, go to the library, get books and watch internet videos all the time about everything, every aspect of it. You know, most of the skills that I have, no one has any idea that I have those skills. All they know is that it feels nice to have a meeting with me, right? Because I've studied like how to not be late, how to conduct a meeting, how to take notes, how to follow up, how to, you know, communicate professionally and those are all things that I learned online, you know, using like LinkedIn learning which I've done forever, right? Because that I had so much catching up to do because I was such a terrible student in high school and college. So my, my education started when I was like 28 in a way. <laughs> so it's been 10 years. That's what I realized when I decided to give myself a promotion. I'm like, you know what? I've really been working hard for 10 years and educating myself. And so at this point, me copying and pasting my tweets is, an, is a bad use of my time for the... Um, you know, for the opportunity costs. I agree. It's so good to outsource. That's like one of the things I struggle with the most. Uh, what are some skills? Obviously, I love the per- the personal skills, the corporate skills. Are there any other like hidden talents that have just done wonders for your career that you never expected would have uh, panned out? Sales, for sure. I love the book Influence. That's a great book on sales. Um, what else? And you're always selling something, right? Like if you want to go to your restaurant rather than the restaurant that your partner wants to go to, you're selling that restaurant. (laughs) Mindfulness and meditation and your focus. So I served as a kind of like an editorial assistant for near AOL and his book indistractable. And so I did a lot of research about technology and distraction. And I certainly didn't become this like I'm, I don't have it all together, right? Like I sneak peeks at my phone all the time and I go through certain phases where sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse, but having control of your own attention is so huge. And it is like, we, you know, people are like distraction. It's like the water we swim in at this point. So it doesn't, we don't even feel it anymore. But I mean, the way that your mind is just being fractured right now all over the place is really, really bad. So kind of learning to get that back under control and pointing it toward the art you want to make or the business you want to build is huge. 
You can get behind that 100%. I love Nier too. That's actually another one of the connections that we had in common. I met him when I was working in technology and UX design conferences and he's brilliant. But yes, I completely agree. I think that's the challenge of our generation. Um, Instead of being in an age of information now, it's more of an age of influence and knowing who to trust and and understanding credibility is is another thing. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's the attention economy. I also want to mention networking too. Networking is huge. We say it's not what you know, it's who you know. I try to say it's not, you know, it is what you know. It's also who you meet and who you cultivate relationships with. So to me, who you know sounds like, oh, you know them because, you know, your dad went to college with them. It's like, no, like you, it's not a growth mindset. It's a fixed mindset, that saying to me. So it's a growth mindset, right? Like you have to make networking and growing your network a part of your life. It's huge. Relationships are huge. So much more than I thought. Um, when I first started business, but it's essential people buy from people and hire people they know and like and trust. And so they have to know you first. They have to get to know you to trust you and to like you. And then it becomes like a really wonderful thing when you love, when you like the people you work with, and then you work with people. I'm actually working on a blog post right now about great clients. I have this client who is amazing. And I, I like seriously have like glowed up this year from working with her because I'm helping her get her message of like how to be successful out. And it is like, I get the live show, right? So she's completely helped me. And yeah, she pays great. She pays on time, but it's like, there's so much beyond that. And I just really, really like her as well too. So that's so cool. Uh, There's so much to unpack there. Lots of valuable little bits of gold, but what are some networking uh, strategies that you would take? Like, let's say you're starting from ground zero and you need to do some networking. How would you go about it? I think certainly paying attention to the people that you want to be in their world or you want them to be in your orbit and then starting to absorb their work and little by little getting to know them, maybe on Twitter, like commenting, things like that. Not expecting, you know, I think we, we feel like when you want someone to be your mentor, it's like you go to them and you're like, will you be my mentor? And it just doesn't work that way. You know? So if you meet someone, I know it's like, you know, in real life, when we go back to conferences again, like just say like, Hey, would you mind if I emailed you a question, right? Like one email, one question, and then build from there, you know, and find people who excite you and who you feel like you connect with. Right. So really one thing that's been important to me is to stop kind of chasing people that I don't really connect with and just sticking with people. Because when you don't feel like you really connect with someone, but you're like, man, I really want the, like, they have great connections or it would be great to work with them or whatever you go in there with like this weird kind of grabby feeling it's not like you're grabbing at their energy or their contacts or something you're like more kind of just teaming up you know and being like oh we both are really all about xyz you know and like for example april who i met at awp which is a writer's conference we realized we're both all about meditation, you know, mindfulness and writing, you know? And so then this project that we worked on together just kind of grew out of that. And it was this really cool thing. And it wasn't like, ha ha ha, I got a contact and, you know, but it's like, you want to bring value to them as well. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Even if you feel like, oh, I have nothing to, no value to add to this person. Um, There's a book called uh, How to Be a Power Connector that I read as research for this a course on freelancing that I'm writing. And it was like one of those things you're like, wow, I am never going to do this to this level, but it just was a really good reminder of, um, of the value of relationships. It's so under talked about under talked about. Is that a thing? Yes. I made it. I make it a thing. 
I dub it a thing. It is now a thing. Everybody be know that it was dubbed right here. It's going to catch on. I can tell. (laughs) It's so fetch. (laughs) It's yeah. (laughs) Fetch is not going to (laughs) happen. It's going to happen. So I love that. Okay, that sounds a genius. And I'd love to actually talk to you more about this exciting course you've got going that you and I chatted name brainstorming a year ago, and I'm so excited mm-hmm. it's coming to fruition. Yes, so yeah. tell me more. Tell me more about this course that's coming up. Yeah. So I do coaching and help people through a 12-week program to establish their business as a writer. It assumes people, um, I also help people who are like just starting to take writing seriously, but this particular one is working with me and setting up your business and getting a business education as a writer and, you know, realizing that anything that, anything that, a you know, a quote, regular business can do strategy, marketing, advertising, you as a writer have to do. And how do you balance that? Um, you know, when people say like, oh, I'm going freelance, it's like, you're really starting a freelance writing business. So if you, it's helping people get the mindset of I'm starting a business. I want this to be a successful business. How do I do that? And also within that, you know, the lifestyle design, like I have, I've named each each week after a, an adjective that describes a successful freelancer. And one of the weeks is responsible. And what I love to say is like, I love to be really responsible so that I can be super irresponsible when I really want to be super irresponsible. Like, oh, my friend just called and they, they have a sailboat for the day. Can I take today off? And like, go on the sailboat. Oh, well, yeah, I've been super responsible. So like I can, I'm like a little ahead so I can take today. I can just like sneak and take a quote mental health day. Like you are your own boss. You can do whatever you want. If you're super responsible and you super kill it and you're like, I'm going to network, I'm going to get awesome paying clients so that I can spend a month in Mexico whenever I want to and not work and, you know, hire an admin person. Like that to me is super exciting and super fun. So it's all about like going out there and killing it as a freelance writer so that you can also design the kind of life that you want to have around your writing. I have three questions that I'm going to try to get to because I could ask you questions all day, I think. But I think <laughs> the first, having worked in in Nira Isle's world, as a self-employed person, how do you stay focused? Because it is easy to chase shiny objects all day. Um, what is your secret oh, yeah. for that? Huh. Um, who said I stay focused? Um, I My calendar is like crazy. Uh, it's, I'm always tweaking my routine and seeing like what works for me. I also do let myself, if I am sensing that my mental energy is like, I'm super excited to work on something right this second. And it was something that I wanted to do this week anyway. And I just have to move around some stuff. I'll let myself do that. Like I will. It's so funny. My friend is a Montessori teacher and she was joking about, she's like, I need to Montessori myself. Like with in Montessori, it's like follow the child and like follow your energy. It's funny because in YNAB, they talk about, I think there's so many parallels between time management and money man- management. And they talk about rolling with the punches. And sometimes it's like, oh, I missed or whatever. Or yesterday I got a migraine and I had to lay down during that hour. Right. So I roll with the punches about where my mental energy is going. Sometimes I realize, hey, I'm really not in a mental place to do this work. Right. Like I'm going to go take a nap. I'm a big napper, napping all the time naps left and right. Sometimes I have to just say like, okay, like you got to do this right now. I will do things like by hand. So I'll print it out and go on the couch and read material. I have to read for a client. I'll read it out loud. If it's super boring material that makes me, my eyes want to glaze over, I'll read it to the dog. Um, and you know, one of the things I just started doing was tracking my revenue generated every day. 
so I realized that, you know, a few weeks ago, like I had a really great week. I planned a lot of things. I improved my processes. And then I got to Friday and I was like, did I earn any money this week? And I was like, I don't think I did. So I finally just, um, did a budget, a business budget and a personal budget. And I said, okay, to make this business budget work, I need to make this amount. And so I started tracking at the end of the day, not how much cash came in, but how much revenue I generated. Right. And that has really helped to see, to really cling to my why, Hey, I want to live this kind of lifestyle. I want to pay off these debts in order to do that. I need to do this other stuff that sometimes isn't that fun. Um, And so really focusing on that and just kind of not beating my head against the wall when I'm unfocused, but like trying to work with whatever energy I have going on that day. That is genius. I love that. I was a Montessori kid. I, I, that was like basically my only education (laughs) until I was about. And then literally I've started having meetings where I call them a holding my hand meeting where I'm like, I cannot get this thing done. And so my admin person and I will like just be on a meeting together and I'll be like, okay, let's just get this done. Like having, again, like accountability measures, right? Where it's like, I just, I need to tell someone that for some reason I cannot send in this one form. And that is like what we're doing during this meeting. Like, I just need you to watch me do it. And this is really pathetic. This is where I'm at right now. And this is the only way that I'll do it. That's genius. All of the assistants that I hire, I basically hire to be my manager because I know I'll have to deliver (laughs) assignments to them if I'm paying them. So yeah, that's genius. Actually, I'm going to use that trick. But yeah, this has been the year for me of uh, follow your bliss and I'm taking that. And I really dig that idea of kind of following your creativity and maybe there's an inner child in there that knows what's best. But it's really a struggle because I also listen to a lot of like productivity bros. Um, I'm like a productivity junkie. And I, so of course, productivity. Yeah. Yeah. Watch out for that. Oh, seriously. Cause they're like schedule everything on your calendar. And I was talking to Paula about it and we're both like rebellious. If it's on my calendar, Mm -hmm. that's the only thing I do not want to do at that moment. And that's it. So I had to abandon that story, that system. So there was something I wrote for Nier's website actually. And it was about like, not saying like, if you are rebellious, which I am too, And there's something that you want to do, not saying, oh, I'm going to be bad and not do this, labeling it as whatever action you're taking is either getting you closer or further away from your goals, right? So I'm going to do this because I'm, I want to get it closer. Okay. I'm going to eat this croissant. It's going to get me, it's going to take me a little farther from my goals. Right. And just like as little emotion as you can, because I am the queen of let's be bad. Let's, let's, let's do this or that, you know? Um, so yeah, so it's been. Um, you know, I love to spend money. I want to make that money, you know? And so it's like, if you want to have those poke bowls and croissants got to make money. So yeah, I don't know, but the scheduling has been, has worked for me better than like a to-do list. And so I also have what I call my executive meeting. And so I do that once a week and there's things like I go through all my emails. And if I have an email, that's just like a little pain in the butt email. I will put a 15 minute space on my calendar and I'm like, handle the thing that Rob wanted me to do. Right. And so it's just like there and I know it's handled and that's been very nice. And how I would say, I'm curious, you are great at email. Actually, that's like your preferred medium. It's like the last, I hate email and you were not, you you did corporate, but I was in corporate for a long time. How do you manage Mm -hmm. your email so well? Uh, I try to just keep my inbox. I have like a little folder that's like my archive folder. So anything that's in my inbox, like I have to handle it. And I try to get it to like, I try to empty it during my executive meeting. Um, 
and I'm pretty like crude about crude. I don't know what, what's the word shrewd. That's probably the word. I'm also crude um, about like unsubscribing and I use rules a lot. So all my newsletters go into a newsletter folder, you know, certain things like that. I am a really big software nerd because in college, when I was the terrible student, you could get out of taking foreign language, which I didn't want to do because it was hard because I was a lazy little SHIT. Um, and so you could take computer software classes. So I learned all about Excel, Outlook, Word, like all the things they could do. Right. And I was like, oh, this was nice. So I definitely am all about actually knowing how Outlook works and it will help you get through your emails. Ooh, that is, that is cool. Is that, do you go over that in your course at all? I do talk about, you know, yeah learning, you know, constantly just learning, like what is, what's the thing that you're struggling with right now? You know, and that's one point on my executive meeting is, is thinking about what is the thing that's in my way right now and either asking, like searching for an answer or um, asking a community forum about it. I love that. And I think one of my favorite things talking to you as well, especially with the FIRE community, a lot of them do tech jobs, corporate jobs. They've really got it laid out. It's really easy to do that math when you have an ongoing paycheck in your bank account Mm -hmm. every month. And I was good at that too. But now that I'm self-employed, it's like one month's amazing, two months are are not amazing. Mm -hmm. How have you dealt with that kind of, like, how have you started surfing those waves? So... I think knowing how much revenue I'm generating each week is helpful. It is a little bit of a, of a struggle to where I'm just kind of like scooting money over to myself nonstop, you know, like, Oh, I need a hundred bucks. Like I'm like my own, my parent, like I need a hundred bucks. Like, all right, here you go. And um, (laughs) So that can be tough. I am going to try to put myself on a more of a kind of payroll And then also using the, I'm just going to start to use the profit first system in the new year. So I just went and opened up all the bank accounts. And so I will be doing that as well. And so just really getting more serious about the budgeting and understanding I'm taking a class with a friend. This is another really good thing that's, that's worked for me is we'll just kind of meet and watch a class together over the internet. So my friend and I are doing a class on cash flow management, right? And just kind of like learning things there. The more money you make, the easier it is because there's money left over, right? Like, so just really focusing on upping my income is a big focus of my kind of strategy. And not everyone can do that. You know, like I know there's the blog, I think she picks up pennies where she's like, I'm a teacher. I'm never going to, like, I have to learn to live on what I have. And so that's a strategy. Like I'm, this is, this is my life, right? For me, it's like, I'm going to get the good clients who can afford to pay me really well so that I can spend two hours a day on my novel paid zero dollars. I dig that a lot. And that actually brings me to my next question, which, you know, clients, that's impressive. How do you Mm -hmm. get them? How do you define which ones you want, which ones to keep, uh, which ones to fire if you can't afford to fire them, et cetera? Yeah. Nothing better than being like, oh, I'm busy because like I had a call with someone and just the energy she left me with was so negative. And someone else called me like, hey, can you do like, it was a ton of work between now and the new year. And I was like, Oh, great. Like I'm too busy, you know, and to, just to be able to choose people that you enjoy working with is wonderful. There are, it's kind of like, it's, it's chaos theory in a way, right. Which I'm just totally talking my butt. I have no idea what chaos theory actually is, but it's chaos. 
right? You don't know who you're like, you were all these like atoms bouncing around, right? And then some, some people need a writer. And so the more you maximize, the more people who know that you are a writer, the more people who rave about you as a writer. I have one former client who like is my fairy godmother. Anytime she hears someone on Twitter who needs a writer, she's tagging me, sending me, recommending me. And I'm like, I like, do I have to start giving you commission? Cause seriously, like you're, this is just so nice. Right. Um, so it's just, it's increasing the chances that someone who needs a writer will hear about you and will hear good things and will want to hire you. It's learning to follow up and sell yourself. Like that great client that I have, she actually, we were talking about sales and writers. And she actually said, the reason I hired you was because you followed up and you sold yourself. And I was like, yes, because it took me so long to learn how to do that and to actually do it. And it literally is 30 seconds. It sounds like, well, I think I can do a really good job for you. And I'd love to work with you on this position. Just that, just that sentence is so hard to say. Right. Um, and, and, and to make the call two days later when they're like, we'll get back to you and to call back and just be like, Hey, I just want to check in. You know, it is, it's, you're risking rejection and you're, it's a vulnerable thing, but kind of just learning about how sales works and how it's a numbers game and lead generation, learning these terms, understanding what it is you're doing when you go to a conference, right? Like you're generating leads. <laughs> Joy of it is when you start to make more money and you start to have projects you like more. I mean, the dream is I really, I have this matrix of categorizing clients by, you know, the, the axis the y-axis is desirability, which can be anything from I want to work with this person to this is a really great name to have on my resume to, and to, you know, this is just really fun work. And then the other axis is compensation, right? So the, the goal is that top right corner where I am having so much fun and I'm also getting paid really well. And I've had a few assignments like that. When I was, you know, I was, I didn't get sent to Japan by the New York times, but I was in Japan when my editor from the New York times said, Hey, we're doing a story on, on international shopping. And I was like, I am in Tokyo right now, no matter what I am pitching a story and you're going to accept it. And I literally know nothing about Tokyo except for this one little neighborhood where they sell amazing denim. And that's what I did my entire trip in Tokyo. And I have no regrets about that. Like I didn't see the tower. I didn't do like the most basic things you do in Tokyo. Um, but I was having so much fun and they pay a dollar a word, you know? So it's not even that like you get to that level and then you stay at that level. <laughs> you get to do that sometimes. Right. And then, but as you progress in your career, you start at the bottom left where you're not getting paid a whole lot and it's not very fun. And sometimes I'm getting paid a lot and I do not care whatsoever about what I'm writing, but I need the money, blah, blah, blah. And the best thing is when you get to pick and choose your clients. And the best way to do that is to be aware of how that happens. And it's just a certain amount of, um, you know, of principles and practices that people in business know about and writers need to learn about if they want to make a business out of their writing. But do you have any COVID remote networking tips now that conferences aren't quite available? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, You know, Twitter is still available. I would just make a list of people you want to work with on Twitter or people you want to follow, asking people if there's anyone that you think they should, that you should meet to have coffee with. That was really nice when 
I love, I just love meeting and talking with new people. Like I'm really, really missing meeting new people. It's like my favorite thing. So someone recommended I talk with someone else. And it was just that so lovely feeling of kind of like awe of like a new person, you know, a new perspective. So taking in as much as you can from people who are out there right now, maybe they're teaching a class, taking a class with people is like a really great way to meet. Certainly there's a cost there. So there's like a bit of gatekeeping, but also just, so if you have this list on Twitter, you can just do a bookmark to that list directly. So it's almost like curating your Twitter to just show you the people that you want to be networking with so that you can be commenting and liking and retweeting and just kind of showing up in their world and paying attention to their work. I love that a lot. That's a great tip. And Instagram has been, if you want to network with young females (laughs) in our age range, Instagram's great. And then also there's something called Lunch Club that came out, but I wasn't, have you heard of Lunch Club? I'll invite you because I get points, okay. if I invite you, but I wasn't impressed. It was, um, it wasn't, I, it was like a lot of people who were aspiring to be where I was versus the other way. And there wasn't like a mixed mm. balance, but it still was like exciting and fun to meet new people. So if you're an extrovert with time on your hands, it's, it's worth it. Especially with, with when you want to work in a creative field, like you have in your pocket access to the entire world, to all the knowledge you want. It was so interesting. This is, I'm hugely, hugely about this. This was another experience from Peace Corps where I I got a horse and I Googled how to ride horse. And I was watching a video of a woman in a very huge, gorgeous arena teaching me how to ride a horse. And she was probably in the U S and I was like, wow, I'm in like the middle of South America learning this. And like, this is pretty crazy. And I just watching the queen's gambit, which takes place in the sixties, you know, this little girl wants to learn chess and this grumpy old man won't teach her. And she's like, teach, teach me. And he's like, no, that that's your option. Like if this person, if the people around you, if the, you know, maybe maximum hundred people around you, in your village or wherever, you know, different places in life, like won't, don't have the knowledge or won't teach it to you, or you can't pay them. You don't get it. All that has been blown away. And so to me, like the internet is an incredible source of chaos and also power. That's really beautifully well put. I like that. But I, I'm curious too, when you were choosing your life path as a writer, like what did you envision you wanted to do as a kid? What was your answer when people asked you what you wanted to do when you grew up? So I told my best friends at the bus stop that I wanted to be a writer when I was 10 years old. And my best friend said to me, do you have any idea how hard that is? And she was not wrong. Um, So it's funny because I still, you know, I'm, I get closer and closer at points. And then I'm like, sometimes I feel like I'm so far away because there are so many different kinds of writers that I want to be. And it's just my personality. I'm very much a generalist. It's better to have a niche, but I refuse to. And so I was just at this reading of, um, of travel writers. And I was like, I want to be a travel writer. And I was like, be like, you have traveled and you're a writer. So why don't you write about your travels? Like, just do it, you know? And, um, So like definitely traveling, I realized because I grew up broke that I wanted to use writing and being a writer as a way to get to experiences, right? I wanted a magazine to send me to Thailand and Myanmar to report on it. Over my lifetime, the magazine industry, as I knew it, completely collapsed. It gets so different. 
right? It's just not a thing anymore the way that it was. And it might look very similar from the outside, but from the inside, people who worked in it in the eighties can tell you it's completely different. So it's been interesting to be like, well, what if I made money and I could do that myself, you know? So I've had to reinvent like how I want to make my money. Um, but yes, I, I just knew that I wanted to be a writer. I liked the idea of being a reporter. I'm very into experiences. If you know the Enneagram, my best friend has told me I'm a six, which is a person who's all about experiences. And so, um, just being an adventurous and writing about it, I think was, was what I really wanted to do. I love that. And you have such cool depth and such great life stories from, from all over. I think one of my favorites too, that I remember from the podcast was, uh, your jobs in high school that you would carry on. (laughs) And like, what, what was your first experience with work like and making money? A creepy guy who would hire us all to work at his ice cream store and he would like show us how to scoop ice cream and get real close up behind us and like put his arm on our like like ghost style right um and my friend we later talked about it he would say like you should wear shorter shorts to her so gnarly we were like 14 and 15 years old and he was like a gross old man so then what would we do we would steal from the store (laughs) we would get takeout and pay for it out of the register and be like this is your punishment for being a creep right which is like has so many lessons about sex and money and power right in there right um and then I worked at a skating rink. I was a DJ at the skating rink for a little bit. They couldn't put me on the floor because I would just fall. I definitely, um, you know, uh, got the skates for people in the stinky little skate rack. I would clean the bathrooms in that place, which was about the grossest thing ever. I have a horrible aversion to uh, the Spice Girls because I would have to hear the Spice Girls all the time. And I probably associate them with the smell of cheap soap and gross bathrooms that I had to clean. And then we worked in an office, which was pretty sweet. Had a lot of different jobs. From parental role modeling and stuff like that, did you see your parents working in a certain position that either you didn't love or you did? Yeah. You know, my mom was a teacher, so it forever gives me this kind of anger that teachers aren't paid better. You know, it's such a shame that we don't pay teachers better. And I knew, you know, my teacher... One of my teachers in middle school worked at the gap after school. You know, it's really terrible that we require teachers to have a second job, but we can't, um, you know, just have them be able to give their, the best of themselves to kids and also like know that they are financially stable. So huge soapbox situation there. Um, And then, you know, my dad struggled to like get a job and then he worked as a supervisor, um, on construction sites and then, uh, was killed in an accident at work. So that really threw open a lot of doors and it was very, very hard for the first year after it happened. Really, really dark. And then, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about in his book, uh, I think it's in David and Goliath about how a lot of the children of people who die young go on to be artists and innovators and do kind of have like kind of more wild lives because the worst has already happened and they live through it. So they kind of have like a higher risk tolerance. And I am like a very risk. What's the opposite of risk averse? 
risk tolerance. Risk tolerance. Like yeah. I do. Yeah. To a degree that's like not good where there's been like really bad consequences. That can be interesting and hard. And, you know, I love the feeling of standing on the edge of the cliff. And then sometimes you, some people fall off the cliff. So real nut in a little bit more as I prepare to hit 40. I found that to be tragically ironic that that was something that you your dad wanted and then obviously no wonder it's probably you probably feel a certain way about jobs I certainly would as well yeah you know I mean it's like it's also I want kind of wanted like a a tattoo of like death that said like boss or like my own like I have some kind of phrase that I want to live by I haven't like perfected it yet but it's like my only boss is death between my dad dying when I was 17 in an accident and doing Peace Corps, like the level that I saw behind the structures of life, like the back, you know, the backstage tour that that was of like, oh, here's how the pulleys work. And this is how the lights make it look. But this is really what it what it really is. There's an absolute feeling of freedom sometimes and also terror but I'm definitely living outside of the structures that a lot of people live within. If you've just kind of like had a pretty normal life. (laughs) I like that. I think it's very archetypal too. I mean, that's why the parent always has that moment in Disney movies. It's so that you can become the full hero of your life. I am definitely an adrenaline junkie, so I can respect it. What is like one of the craziest risks you've taken? Did you plop over or did you just barely escape in time? Well, I have a story, an essay I wrote that was like one of my first big, big essays. I'm really proud of it because I really had to stick with it to make it work. But it was about one of the times that I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I was building a house in 2000 five and the person I was living with like her pit bull seemed like a little creepy but I was like it'll be fine whatever and the pit bull ended up attacking me and that's probably the closest to death I got it grabbed it got my arm and then she got it off me and I was running and then I like heard its nails on, on the floor and it got me by the thigh and like took me down on the ground and luckily she like got it off me again but I mean if it had just jumped and gotten my neck or my face at the first jump. I mean, I would have had a very different life or easily could have been dead in second game of Thrones reference. Um, in game of Thrones, a a, like wolf dog or something like jumps up and rips someone's neck out. And I had this chill through my body. Like I saw my own dead body. Like I, it freaked me out so bad. Um, so that kind of like, Oh, it'll be fine. Kind of thing. Um, you know, and then I'll just do stuff like, meet some people who seem great and fly to Italy to stay with them. And, you know, or like, I'm just very trusting of people. And it's really funny because my sister works in security and she is the exact opposite. So we're really funny uh, in that way. We're very much like she was in the Marine Corps and I was in Peace Corps. We're very much Marine Corps and Peace Corps (laughs) differences. (laughs) Yeah. Just really trusting people. And, you know, I just did an interview with Pam Mandel, who's a travel writer and she wrote uh, the same river twice. And, we were talking about this feeling in travel where you're like, are we going to our deaths or are we going to like the best day of our lives? Cause you can't hang on to the, you know, to the tether. You got to let go and like trust the situation, even though, you know, like terrible things do happen, but these guys seem cool, but probably most murderers know how to seem cool until the murder happens. So those kind of things. 
100%. Yes. I, if I could like look back at all the decisions I made in high school and uh, yeah. throughout my travels, it's very, I very uh, have many tales to tell, but I'm really glad I did all those things to be honest. Like, you know, I saw more life because of it. It's hard sometimes because you're like, oh, there's so many people in the world who would kill for my level of safety and security. And then I'm like, I'm just going to go off and put myself in danger. You know, I mean, it's really hard. It's really it's really hard, but I, I do find myself taking pretty big risks usually. If you don't take risks, there's no reward. Yeah, I think acknowledging the risk of it and saying like, okay, what is risk mitigation? You know, okay, I need to have, you know, three months salary in the bank. I need to have this. I need to have an F off fund. Having a knife in your boot, right? Like having something that's kind of your backup plan. That's a great place to write what you wrote in terms of the power of the F off fund because yeah, it's the knife in the boot. And probably as somebody who's like a little bit more inclined towards risk, you really want to have that reminder to have that cushion to fall on. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. You know, we don't live in an an environment where people are given the same opportunities at all. So just recognizing the opportunities you do have to protect yourself when they come your way and using them. And I, you know, I say this as someone who is not good at it. That's how I got these stories. I didn't get these stories because I was like, I wonder if some people are spending their money irresponsibly, you know, like these are my stories. And I didn't magically become someone who was great with money because I wrote about it and the story blew up, you know, I'm still me for sure. And I struggle with it. And I'm welcome to the writer's life is like your mental health, like your health in every single way, not just the health of your business. But I I really feel like we need to get back to this like more holistic view of what is, what is success? I think that's actually one of something I would love to dive in deeper. Did you study writing in college? Did you know? I I got a magazine journalism degree. Nice. Were there any like key takeaways with that qualification that made you feel like you could go do it? Do you think you need that in order to be a writer? No, I don't think you need that in order to be a writer. I mean, I was so like, my college transcripts are hilarious. I did put them on Instagram there. I mean, I literally took racquetball twice. I took stress and anxiety management. Like I just wanted the easiest thing. I was just so... Oh, I, I like, I wanted to like shake me when I go back now. It's like, I did not know about the joy of, of hard work. I did not know about the joy of hard work. I knew about the game of trying to get out of work. That's what I knew as a kid. I clearly, you know, I mean, I was on like mostly a scholarship and student loans, but you think about people whose parents worked their entire lives to send them to college. They wouldn't be doing that. That would be, it was an absolute like disgrace. <laughs> I was an absolute disgrace in college. Like literally, I remember the day that I graduated, I was holding my nephew in my hands, in my arms and like looking around and I was like, I grad, like I'm supposed to be educated. Like I did it. I like, I did it. I got away with being such a terrible student. I'm supposed to be educated now and I'm not. And so that's a big part of my life is filling in those gaps that I didn't respect my education enough, even though I have a lot of problems, problems with the education industry. If you want to be a writer, All it takes is a lot of curiosity and hard work. And it's really, it's very simple. It's reading a ton. It's writing a ton. It's learning about how business works. And it's really keeping all the distractions away from me. Like I would, if you have a choice to not have a television, like I would stop watching TV so that you're just reading in the evenings or learning, at least take a year off. Say, I'm going to knock on, I'm going to not watch. If I was really getting started, I would say, I'm going to get rid of my TV for a year 
and just either be reading, writing, or learning for a year and see where I am. So true. If it makes you feel better, I did care about college and uh, I went and studied business and everything changed the day I graduated anyway. All of the things I learned are so dated, like marketing has changed completely. Mm -hmm. So I don't even, I have a friend who has multiple degrees in writing and she came to me and was like, how do I write a book? Because I published something on Amazon and I was like, wait Mm -hmm. a second, wait a second. So I think you're right. I think it's all about the taking action part is key, but uh, it's, you know, it's got to be great at least to have an editor because when you're self when you're writing a blog or when you're writing um self-publishing it can be really anxiety inducing because you don't know uh what kind of quality you're putting out there yeah I mean I would really I'm in love with this roomy quote lately that's uh let the beauty we love be what we do and I have this memory from middle school where I mean I was seriously like the laziest student in the world like laziest student in the world. And I think it was because I wasn't challenged at all. Like I had some classes where I was allowed to do projects and stuff. Like I have no tolerance for busy work and I have such a BS meter. And I think my BS meter was like always going off in middle school. And I was like, this is bull. And it was just like a terrible attitude to have and like not proud of it, but that's, that's what I was like. And then we had this project where you had to make something out of clay we were doing a unit on the Holocaust. And so I did like a three dimensional, like a cross section of a hill into which people had built a bunker. And I was like, would not go to bed. I was stayed up to like one in the morning working on it. And so I really recognize that about myself with, with my energy, like where I'm like, if I am into something, I cannot be stopped. And there was a summer that my best friends and I just played Mario paint, which was an art game where you could compose music, make drawings and like, we would tape them on the VCR and show our parents. And I'm like, all I want to do is watch Mario or play Mario paint. Right. Which is like, to me now is Adobe. <laughs> so just like figuring out where, where your energy, just realizing that I'm the kind of person, and it's a privilege to be able to, to say, I'm the kind of person who really likes to be into their work. Well, good for you, bitch. Are you the kind of person who likes to eat? Like you work at a factory now. That's a lot of people's realities. So I'm very lucky that I get to say that like, I'm really going to set up my life in a way where I get to do what I love and what I'm engaged in. Cause then I'm like a, you know, my friend said to me, I was like, I'm so bad about doing things. And he goes, yeah, but with some stuff, you're a pit bull. And I'm like, that's very true. Like if I'm super into something, I will just like go for it hundred percent. And I accept that about myself. And I'm lucky to be in a place where I can make a career out of that. That resonates tremendously with me. And I think it's a good quality to have. Do you know Sarah Cooper? She's a comedian. Mm-hmm. She's the one who like lip, lip, lip syncs Donald Trump. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So she was talking. at Google as well. And she, um, she also had just like, no, could not deal with it. Right. Is what I've been mm-hmm. told. Cause I've got friends that know her. Um, and she DM'd mm-hmm. me on Instagram and it was amazing. Um, but also, so yeah, so that's how she wrote that whole thing. The whole website makes fun of the dumb bullshit that we do as humans. So I think it's yeah. actually like a superpower if you aren't up for like dealing with that dumb crap, you know, and I look at her, like she's now on Netflix. I mean, yeah, she gave up Google, but now yeah. she has her own series. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's your in, intuition, your inner child, like listen to them and let them play is what I think. Yeah. But also like get ready and prep yourself. You know, I, I watched this thing, um, this show called the weight of gold on HBO. And it was about, it was about Olympians and how much they struggle and how hard their life is and how so many of them go broke. And it's like, man, you gotta, you have such a, I think if you're an Olympian, you have such a brand that you can leverage to make money. But if you just think it's about how good you are at your sport, clearly 
that's not enough. You know, I mean, it was just, it's heartbreaking because they work so hard, you know, and, but it's like, you have to have some other kind of game with it, or you have to figure out how to monetize it. Um, because this country will just let you die in the street, <laughs> which is so sad, but that's it's, so true. you know, and, in, and not in the ways where other countries will let you die in the street. Um, but you look at, you know, health insurance and the situations where people are just going broke over medical debt. I mean, I was in, when I was in Thailand, we were hanging out with some Australians and we said something about, well, first of all, this guy was a firefighter and he got nine weeks off a year. And then I said something about, we were talking about something like the medical debt in the United States. And he goes, Oh, medical debt. He's like, that's just a phrase that I like, can't even comprehend. I like my, like, you know, people are like, your economic indicator, like things you carry around, like my fancy purse is my medical insurance. And it cost me $490 a month over the last year. And I just went through like a much cheaper plan for next year. And I'm like, hope it doesn't, you know, kill me money in a lot of ways. Money is safety and you can use money to buy safety. Yeah. I think that that's why it is so critical. Um, And that's kind of another sort of theme of this is in other countries, perhaps they're not first world countries, but they do have these social systems that support them. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very family based and it's very like, Mm -hmm. you know, or they also completely can live off the land in, in like the way that things are set up. They can have a farm, they can have a cow. Like the U S is every man is an Island and every man is like self-sufficient completely or every woman, um, which I think is every man for himself should be like the motto. (laughs) Let's get rid of in God. We trust every man for himself. That's, so good. Yes. It's so that true. That is the USA way. Yeah. <laughs> but it's cool because, you know, it leaves a lot of opportunities to build things where there is nothing. And, and there's this idea in spirituality that what you resist persists. And so you see it in, you know, the war on drugs. Okay. Drugs explode. The war on terror, terrorism explodes. And I don't, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, well, how does it, how does it work? Like, what's the science behind it? Like, I need to know if it's true or not, but I'm like, I can see that there might be some truth to this. Right. So to me, there's enough kind of evidence there to, to, to focus on what I'm for. Right. So this, I'm very much about organizing community events. I love that. It's a total joy for me. And so one of the things I did lately was free writing and meditation studio called a very important meeting. And, you know, it's just been absolutely lovely. We get together, we do a little mindfulness meditation for 10 minutes. We all write together. I enjoy everyone's little writing face on the zoom. And, you know, I read a poem at the end of the meditation about mindfulness. And then we just all talk for like 15 minutes and just have that little moment of connection. And it's just so nice. And to me, it also just feels better to say, what can we build? We're all moving forward in a situation that is just so messed up and in a system that's so messed up. And the constant question is participating in this system, a way to strengthen it, but how do you not participate in the health insurance system, right? Like I like living. So I don't know. Yeah. It's really, it's, if it feels very hard, it is because it's very hard, you know, and I have to remind myself of that sometimes. I'm like, you are trying to carve out your own life in a country that just wants you to sit in a cubicle and use these words and not these words and wear these clothes and not these clothes and go home and order your Domino's pizza and watch your 4.5 hours of television and then place your order and then go to sleep and then do it again and do that for about 45 years and then please die. (laughs) 
that is definitely <laughs> like the message I've gotten as to what the world wants for me as well. So yeah, I totally yeah. hear you. And I've talked about this too with my fiance. Um, when it comes to healthcare, I mean, America is supposed to be promoting entrepreneurship and the kind of lives that we're choosing to lead of freedom. Um, but it's really hard to go start a business or start your own idea when you have zero healthcare, you know, and that's, I think, a hindrance to innovation more than it's helping. So I mean, before, like, what did people do before, you know, Obamacare? I have no idea. Um, and actually my family didn't, we didn't have health insurance for two years when we were young. Crazy. And that's why it's so important to me. And I think one of the things about financial, you know, strategy and stability is like, what is the most important thing? Like put the first, put the first things first. And to me, it's like, I think it's so messed up that I have to pay $500 a month for insurance and I am going to pay $500 a month for insurance if I have to, because like, that's just the situation I'm in, you know? So I think the, the women over at bitches get riches are really good about being like, we think the system is very messed up and we fight to help design a better system, but we also teach you how to thrive within the system we have today. And that's all you can do. And and that's kind of one, why I wanted to also have this movement that I'm working on because I want to explore wealth as in terms of what it means and also like how can you use wealth for freedom. I love that you figured out how to do that, how you have you are like surviving and thriving in this crazy world and this crazy system. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel like it's figured out, but I, I think it is it's starting to take a turn. I think things are going okay. Nice. For the meditation group too. So that's a big thing. Money self-made is about obviously money as an energetic force, but also mindfulness and meditation is huge because uh, it kind of examines like the self and working on yourself from the inside out. So tell me about this meditation group in terms of like, how has it changed your life or your day? Why are you an advocate for meditation? Well, it's been so surprisingly wonderful. I mean, I just started it during the quarantine to on just on Saturdays to help people who um, kind of just needed a place to regather, like gather their thoughts and just have a space to write because it was everything just felt so intense. And just to say, that, okay, this is a time we're doing this, like we're carving this out. And then I started during quarantine, I was reaching 10 years from when I was, had come back from Paraguay and I was really mad that I hadn't done anything to keep my Spanish up. And I also was gaining the COVID weight as I think we all were and not exercising. And like, it's not, I don't want to be like skinny. I just want to be like fit and healthy so I can adventure. That's my goal. Now that I'm like, you know, now that I'm close to 40, I've given up on never having a six pack, which is a great freedom to have. And so I was just like, oh, I wonder if I could get like a personal trainer online who lives in, you know, like Columbia is like one of my favorite places. So started working out with him and uh, we work out five days a week and it's been amazing. And then I realized that I was working out every day, but I wasn't writing every day. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to start doing these meditations and free writing groups five days a week. So I started doing it at seven every morning and one thing I noticed about meditating before writing was that I was using a lot of space on the page before to complain about whatever, you know, and once I started meditating before writing, I noticed I got to the creative work a little more quickly. You know, it was kind of like the meditation had cleared my mind rather than needing to clear my mind by just like complaining about whatever. And it's just a joy. It's just been a real, real joy. I mean, I 
I don't know how to describe it. I'm just very, I'm surprised by it, by how much I love it. I want to join. How do I sign up and how do people listening sign up? So you can go to a very important meeting.com and we have a calendar. We have, um, it's not just 7am. We have all kinds of times that we offer classes and we're ever expanding those. So nice. Very cool. I'm so in, I'm so in. And tell me about this Mm -hmm. GoPro thing. How do I get in on that going pro? So go to um, my website, which is welcome to the writerslife.com. And there is a coaching page on there and you can do a free 15 minute consultation with me to make sure that um, it's what you need. Love it. Highly recommend. I did the consultation and Paulette helped me understand like writing without a bottom line. She taught me how to write just for the joy of writing. And this was when I was very corporate. So I learned how to just, yeah, I think I'm writing now because of you. So I really appreciate that. Highly recommended. Yes. (laughs) All right. Great. Well, any final words, any final plugs for our audience? You can follow me on Instagram to see my rejections. Um, But (laughs) other than that, just, uh, you know, email and say hi. And I look forward to seeing what you create. Thank Thank you for being so generous with us today. I appreciate it. It's just good to catch up with you too. It's just like fun. This is my most fun interview is just to see you. Thank you so much for coming on the show this week, Paulette. I don't know about you, but I learned a ton. Not only was I extremely entertained, but I had a bunch of really great takeaways from this episode. I would love to know from you, what did you think? Shoot me a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Or if you're watching on YouTube, please leave a comment below. And remember to smash that like button. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait to see you next week. We've got a really fun guest coming up. If you would like to get a sneak peek of the show guests, I always crowdsource my podcast questions in our Facebook group. So check out facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash money self-made to join the tribe. And you can ask our next guest your questions. So I can't wait to see you there. Thank you so much for joining our community. See you next week. Keep tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Stir Crazy Beverage Infusions. So if you're tired of sweet drink sugar hangovers, or if you just want to add an extra kick to your cocktail, check out GetStirCrazyWithAnEye.com. So that's G-E-T-S-T-I-R-C-R-A-Z-I.com. And you can get your very own liquor infusion flavor. So uh, flavors include lavender lemonade, apple cinnamon pie, Cinco de Drinco spicy margarita, and rosé almay, which is a hibiscus rose orange flavor. That And they all turn really fun colors and have special surprises inside. So... They can also be enjoyed as a cocktail or tea. They're all handmade from scratch in the United States with freshly dehydrated and dried ingredients. You can't find tea with these whole fresh ingredients anywhere else in the United States. Definitely check out our sponsor, GetStarCrazy.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to hit subscribe and smash that like button. I will see you next week.